And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. Well, this is going to be a big week around here. I uh, am recording uh, this podcast uh, uh, focusing on uh, the combination of the equity asset classes that we talked about in last week's podcast, uh, focusing on the ultimate buy and hold uh, portfolio. Now, if you have not heard that, I really think it will be helpful to have heard that particular presentation prior to reviewing this information. And we have a link uh, to that podcast. We also have a link to a video that was done uh, along with the podcast for those who prefer uh, learning that way. Uh, and we're doing the same with this week's presentation as we will with the rest of this seven-part series that we are working on right now. Uh, this will be followed by fine-tuning your asset allocation, uh, a look at the implications of putting fixed income along with equity. That will be followed by uh, uh, an overview of using the different strategies uh, again, combining equities and fixed income, or all equities, uh, in the accumulation uh, phase of life. And then we will do one on uh, distributions, one on fixed distributions, one on variable distributions, two separate presentations. And uh, uh, finally, we'll do a piece on uh, the, the uh, selection of the uh, funds and ETFs to go along with all of these portfolios. So by the time you complete the seven uh, parts, I think you will know the guts of the work that we do in trying to help people uh, put together more productive uh, portfolios over a lifetime. This week is very special for me. Not only uh, are we going to be recording uh, um, a couple of videos, and uh, and I'll be recording a couple of the podcasts, uh, uh, getting ahead so I can go on a, a vacation with my wife. But uh, this week I will be attending a very special dinner of uh, all of the employees of, uh, of the Merriman Wealth Management Company. Uh, they are celebrating their 40th year in business. And uh, it's uh, certainly the company is like a child to me. Uh, the, the, the child flew the nest in 2012 when I uh, sold my ownership uh, to the employees and to Focus Financial, uh, a large, a very large firm that has combined many uh, investment advisors. So this is a big week. Oh, and of course, I've got... Uh, an interview, I'll be uh, listening to Tom Cox's presentation as part of the Bainbridge Island uh, series that will be a Zoom, uh, and Tom will be talking about investments from age uh, 40 to 65. So last week I covered the 20 to 40, he'll do 40 to 50, 65, and then uh, um, Christine Benz will We'll make a presentation the following week for the people who are in retirement. And finally, Mary Beth Franklin will be doing a piece on Social Security. So we have a very busy month. 
uh, and uh, and and this series of seven uh, pieces that we're working on now, I really think it's the best that we have to offer in terms of education. But let's get into today's work, and we're going to be focusing. In fact, there are. If you want to do this before we dig into numbers, if you wanted to download uh, the link to the uh, sound investing portfolios, the first one will be to a 50-50 portfolio. So there'll be a group of tables that have to do with building these portfolios. There are some nine portfolios, and they, when they do use the internationals, there'll be 50%. Then there's a second link that will take you to uh, the same set of portfolios except 70% U.S. and 30% international. Now, you're going to find the difference is not great, but I know a lot of people are more comfortable with having um, only 30% in internationals, and this will give them a chance to take a look at, uh, at what that means. And by the way, all of the, all of the uh, fine-tuning tables we'll look at and, and all of the distribution and accumulation tables, uh, while we won't spend a lot of time on 7030 uh, because we have spent most of our time talking about 5050, but in each case, we'll be able to show you the implications of selecting a portfolio with less international. So let me uh, talk about page one of seven, if you downloaded uh, the link to the sound investing portfolios with the 50-50 U.S. international combination. Let's start with, uh, with page one. And on page one, uh, and this will be a reminder to those of you who listened to the uh, last podcast, but on page one, we have uh, the recommended asset allocation, equity asset allocation for the nine portfolios. Now, we actually, one of those is the S&P 500 by itself. And I'm not anti-S&P 500 with all of your money. I'm just saying that all of the history uh, that we'll show you today going back to 1970, and there's more history, but not in this presentation that goes back to 1928. Um, but we know that the S&P 500 has produced a lower rate of return um, with, with less risk. I think it would generally be accepted. I'll try to make the case that that, that difference in risk may not may not be what you think it is, and it may actually be the S&P 500 is more risky than these other portfolios. So so we start, that's the benchmark. And then we have the ultimate buy and hold strategy, 10% in each of 10 equity asset classes, from big to small, value to blend, blend being a combination of growth and value, both U.S. international, a slice of REITs, and a slice of emerging markets. So uh, 10 different equity asset classes, and and uh, you can see the, in each column here how much you would have in those different asset, asset classes. Now, the third one down is a worldwide 
for fund. You'll notice that's 25% in the S&P 500, 25% in small cap value, U.S., 25% international large cap value, and 25% international small cap blend. Very similar in exposure to the major asset classes, large blend uh, and uh, uh, and small blend and large value and small value. You'll find, you'd be surprised maybe, how similar these returns are once you start doing a multiple equity uh, asset class combination. Then we go to an all-U.S. four-fund strategy, and then a worldwide all-value. Even has a small slice of, uh, uh, of emerging markets. And remember, 50% of the portfolio is going to be in the U.S. and 50% international when we include the uh, worldwide. Uh, then we have a U.S. all-value. 50-50, large value and small value, all U.S. Then a worldwide all small cap value, a U.S. all small cap value. And finally, a 50% S&P 500 and 50% in small cap value. So uh, there's a lot of different combinations here. Uh, well, you might be the type of investor that simply wants to know what produced the highest rate of return, and how much more risky was it uh, than the others. You may also uh, look for a strategy that over the last 53 years uh, was most consistent in turning out uh, uh, a return, so that uh, if you were in retirement and for the equity part of your portfolio, you were trying to invest in a way that you feel you could count on getting a decent return, that might uh, have you leaning towards uh, uh, something that is uh, maybe not the most profitable, but the most consistent. So there'll be reasons why all of these might be of, of interest. And I've, I've found that many of you, what you're doing is you're taking all this information and then you're creating your own combination. You may even have a have a, a slice of a sector in your portfolio. I know a fellow who uh, probably about once every uh, two to four weeks will send me something on the healthcare sector, and I can I can almost guarantee that that Dan has a slice of uh, healthcare in in his portfolio. So uh, this is remember we're trying to help the do-it-yourself investor uh, do better. And hopefully not only help them make more money, but try, if we can, to, in some fashion, uh, reduce the risk. And, um, and as we've always talked about, uh, uh, increase, if you will, the peace of mind. So now I want to go to page two of seven on that first uh, link that is, uh, again, all about 50-50 U.S. international. And I, I want to leave this for you to dig deeper later, but what you could do to get a sense of the broad variety of returns that happen when you have different combinations. Remember, one of the challenges for investors who might use any of these other uh, portfolios other than the S&P 500, 
there always or maybe maybe there is one case where they had the same return, but you're almost always going to get a different return than the S&P 500 because you've expanded outside uh, the asset class, the large cap blend asset class of the S&P 500, and it's the U.S. large cap blend. So the, the bottom line is that you can start to get a sense, an education about the differences. If you just look at this uh, page two, this is table H1, and it looks at the annual returns of each of these portfolios, and uh, and again, compared to, to the S&P 500, if you would like there, uh, in the first uh, uh, portfolio column. But notice in 1970, and we're, we look at all the years of 70 through 2022, in 1970, the S&P 500 was up 4%. But if you looked at the other combinations of, of uh, asset cl- equity asset classes, you'll notice there wasn't a wild difference, but, um, but a little difference. The Ultimate buy and hold was up 2.1. The worldwide four fund strategy up 2.5. The U.S. four fund strategy down 0.3. The worldwide all value up 6.4. The U.S. all value, that's half U.S. large and small each, uh, up 4.6. The worldwide all small cap value up 5.3. The U.S. all small cap value down 1.5, and the U.S. two fund strategy, remember that's half small cap value, half S&P 500, up 1.5. Now, it's not a huge difference in return, but 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 they were uh, different returns. Um, and then the next year, the S&P 500, after after being one of the best performers, not the best, but one of the best, was up, this is 1971, up 14.3. And if I look over at the worldwide all small cap value, the best performer of this particular year, up 34.4. The worldwide four fund strategy, up 34.3. The uh, uh, the ultimate buy and hold that's the ten fund up twenty nine point four. Now all of a sudden the the return the differences are starting to get very large, and the same thing happens the next year nineteen seventy two. Uh, the big winner was the worldwide four fund up twenty eight point twenty six point eight. And the all value uh, small cap U.S. value up seven point six. So I think that if you go through these years, and the idea is to start to give you some perspective. So as your future returns flow, you will see that that it it really is going to be some sort of a random event. There's be some things we'll see in common on average. I'll show you that uh, in a few minutes, but it won't surprise you. And just drop down to the 2000 through 2002 period. And uh, I noticed that the S&P 500 
lost money three years in a row, down 9.1, down 11.9, down 22.1. Now those, by the way, those losses were nothing compared to the losses of the uh, the tech indexes where where it was called the tech wreck, and uh, the tech stocks were down at the end of that period of time or at one at one point during that period of time, down uh, over 80%. But when I look over at the at the U.S. four fund strategy, I see down 1.2, down 4.5, down 9.5. Wasn't bad at all. On the other hand, I can look over and look at the U.S. all value. Up 10.8, up 13, and down 12 wasn't perfect, but it was an amazing return. And I can tell you one of the reasons our business grew so much uh, during this particular period of time is because uh, we had the, the ultimate buy and hold strategy, which, which uh, had small losses over that period of time. And it made the case, it made the case so obviously uh, that people should consider not only having that diversification of 500 companies in the S&P 500, but also to have the, uh, the diversification of different equity asset classes. Well, let's move on to the page that I think is uh, by far uh, the most important of this uh, series of seven pages. This is, uh, this is the fine work of Daryl Balls and his ability to think what what could we show you that would allow you to to get a sense of what it is like uh, to be in these different uh, combinations of equity asset classes. So uh, notice at the top of the page he makes it very simple. If you're uh, if you're just a bottom line person and you want to know. How would I? How much money would I have made over that period of time uh, if I had some real money and some real skin in the game? And in this, he doesn't assume a big investment. He assumes an investment of ten thousand dollars, nothing added, nothing taken out for the fifty-three years. And so you can see here the S and P five hundred had a final value. Uh, of $1,890,696. I'll round from now on. If you compare that to the ultimate buy and hold portfolio, pretty close to twice the amount, $3.7 million. If you looked at the worldwide four-fund strategy, uh, again, an attempt to cover all of the major equity asset classes with four funds, but to divide it between the U.S. and international, it uh, was $3.9 million. If you looked at the four fund all U.S., it was $4.1 million. If you looked at the worldwide all value, it was $5.9, I'm sorry, $5.3 million. If you looked at value, all U.S., $6.4 million. Now, keep in mind, these are all compared to the $1.9 million for the S&P 500. The worldwide small cap value, uh, $9.1 million. 
the U.S. all small cap value eight point five six million, and the two fund uh, U.S. Uh, large cap bland and small cap value of four point five million. So all of these combinations, and by the way, I'm sure you're not shocked at the at the fact that uh, all of the combinations did better than the S&P 500 because remember the 10 funds that we talked about last week in the ultimate buy and hold strategy uh, the 10 include the S&P 500 the S&P 500 is considered to be the highest quality of those equity asset classes and the academics have indicated that over sufficient period of time to give them a, a a sense of comfort to say that you would expect a higher rate of return from these other equity asset classes. So if you put them together in a diversified portfolio, I mean, any of them together, you're likely going to have a better return than the S&P 500 itself. I mean, no big surprise. I think where the surprise comes more is more on the losing side, whether it is on the making side. So the next thing that Daryl did is to give people some sense uh, without having to look through every year from 1970 through, through 2022 to give people some sense. What would it be to live through the decades starting with 1970 through 79, 80, 89, 1999, 2000, 2009. And then what he did was he gave a number for 2010 through 2022. And this then allows us to do something, I think, that that is helpful. Uh, these, these numbers by the decade don't mean a lot to a first-time investor because they've got 40 years. What we might like to look at for those people would be 40 years of returns, uh, not 10. But what if we are retiring and we are concerned about walking into a sequence of returns that would be unfriendly and would be uh, financially uh, punishing uh, to start right in the face of that kind of uh, of an outcome. So what he did was he broke it down into these uh, these 10-year periods. And so if we look at the S&P 500, that's the benchmark. So I'll mention it in every case. I won't mention all of the rest of them uh, in each case. But uh, from 70 through 79, the S&P 500 compounded at 5.8%. Now that was really a, a struggling decade. We had a huge loss in 73 and 74. At one time, uh, the market was down over 50%, and uh, and it was traumatic for people. There was even a magazine cover uh, that the headline on the cover said, the death of equities. And, uh, and, and there was a lot of gloom and doom. Uh, and so uh, that 5.8%, and, and by the way, if, if you started in 1973, and you can go back and look at the previous page, but you would see that that was a really unfriendly time to get started. But at the end of the decade, if you started at the beginning, 5.8% compound rate of return. Not what investors expected. But 
When I look at all of the other combinations across that page, I'm on page 3 of 7, table H2. If I look at all of those returns, I notice that they range from uh, about 13 uh, all the way up to uh, uh, 17.2. Excuse me, the lowest was 10.1, and the highest was 17.2. So everybody else had a a pretty good sharing, uh, a, a return. And if you note, it was generally... Uh, those with the value orientation. I'm looking at the worldwide all value at 14.4 and the U.S. all value at 1,300 and the worldwide all value at 17.2. So value had a very fine decade. Now, you're going to have plenty of opportunities if you're a long-term investor to sit through decades that value is not the star performer. You'll see that in just a few minutes here. Then if we look at the next decade, it was wonderful. It started in 1975 that the market became more profitable after the 73-74 decline, but for all of the 80-89, everybody was having a good time. Everybody made a good return. The S&P 500, 17.5. Value again produced Returns of 20 to 23, the ultimate buy and hold at 22, uh, and uh, looks to me like the highest return was worldwide small cap value at 26.7. But it was a great period, and I suspect that if you were in the S&P 500 during that period, and it was up and running in 1976, you would feel very good about your return. You'd be happy for others who might have had different combinations, but you weren't feeling like you were missing anything because you made a fine return. And particularly when you just went through a decade where you made less than 6% to make 17 feels good. And boy, is the next decade an amazing decade. After having just gone through 17.5 a period, the S&P 500 compounds at 18.2. And this is a period that that it had just a, a wonderful return. As a matter of fact, it was number one during that period of time. And, and it was during that period of time that people really discovered the S&P uh, 500, uh, or the early years of discovering the S&P 500. It, it, it was not a big winner right out of the gate in the minds of investors. Even if the return was good, people still did not see the great value until it had gone on for, for 25 years and you, you probably reached a tipping point in terms of people's acceptance of the S&P 500. It, it takes a long time to prove yourself, uh, and I certainly know that from being in the industry uh, a long time myself. Uh, it, it, but, but here's what I see. I, I see that uh, uh, after two decades of returns of greater than 17% compound rate of return, By the way, people had very high hopes for the next decade. This is that recency bias, that 
that tendency to think in a linear fashion. But then the next decade, it was terrible for the S&P 500. It was absolutely horrible. It did not make money at the end of the decade. It lost a lot of money, as we looked at just a few minutes ago, from 2000 through 2002, and, and, and then it came back and did well, but then in 2007, late in 2007 through early in 2009, it was down another 50% and then had to come struggling back. So that was a traumatic time for people. And as I've mentioned many times, almost a very similar return to what happened from 1929 to 38. So it was serious a business in terms of losses. What made it different from 1929 to 38 was that everything got hammered back then. But in this particular period, you actually had some decent returns. Now, the best return was the worldwide all-small-cap value and uh, at, at, at up uh, 10.5, the worldwide all-value up 8.5, the U.S. all-value up 6.9, the worldwide ultimate buy-and-hold, the 10-fund strategy, up 7.3. None of these were home runs, but I can tell you, it was a big deal to have made money during that period of time. And it's not going to shock you that millions of people stopped investing and cashed out with some sizable losses, whether it happened in the tech wreck of 2000 through 2002 or the real estate wreck uh, in the 2007 through 2009. Their losses were much more than the loss of the S&P 500. There, there are people who, who lost 50 to 80 to all of their money uh, at some point during the 2000 through 2009 period. So then we look at the last, we'll call it a decade, but it's actually 2010 through 2022. The S&P 500 now is back on top up 12.1% compounded versus uh, a range of uh, 8.2 for the ultimate buy and hold up to about, uh, let's see, 11.7 for that two-fund strategy uh, with the S&P 500 and small cap value. So it is, uh, it, it's a good way, I think, to look at these by the decade. Now we we've already looked at the at the uh, uh, the impact of the money over the whole time, but let's look at the impact on your money uh, during uh, other periods of time. Let's look at the worst best of times, then let's look at the worst of times, because uh, up above we had a blue box. Those are the decade returns in what is now the green box on uh, table H two. That box focuses in on how did each of these strategies do when they made money and how often did they make money. And so Daryl totaled up the number of up years. Let's, let's look at the S&P 500, up 42 of the 53 years, and the average up year was 18.7. And if you summed up all the positive years, 
it was a 787% uh, return. Plus, he, he picked out the best year, which was up 37.5% in 1995. Now, you can compare all of the other combin- uh, portfolios uh, and, and see how they did. There were others that had 42 profitable years. The ultimate buy and hold did, except its average was 20.6 for a total up of 863.2%. Even better, the worldwide four fund strategy, an average of 20 point up, uh, 20.8% for a total of 875.5%. Now, when you get over to the all-value portfolio worldwide, there were 44 profitable years. There were two more profitable years than the S&P 500. The average was 20.6 for a total of 904.4 versus the 787 for the S&P 500. And the total is even higher for the U.S. all-value. 926, but it only had 41 uh, profitable years with an average of 22.6. So you can turn the good good years inside out here and get a sense of how you would have done in these different portfolios. Now, some of these portfolios are not going to be appropriate for you. And so even though the returns may be Tempting, for example, uh, the big winner was the all-U.S. small-cap value. One fund and all-small value, up over 1,000, 1,020.9. There were 40 years it was profitable. The average profit was 25.5%. And, and I think this is key, the combination of the large cap blend and small cap value in the U.S., the combination was up 872%. 41 years were profitable, and uh, the average gain was 21.3%. So uh, I would say that uh, it is true that there is a little, there is more volatility in small cap value and it appears to be on the upside because as you drop down into the red box, now we get to take a look at the returns in the worst of years. Now we can see uh, how the S&P 500 did when it lost money. And I think you'll be happy to see the average loss was just 14.5% in the 11 years it was down. And if you sum up All of those losing years, remember it was up 787%. Well, it was down 159.2% over all of the years, those 11 years that it lost money. Now that to me is something we can compare how the others did to find out how much more risky were the other combinations. And it turned out when we look at the ultimate buy and hold strategy. Remember, this is a portfolio uh, that 
turned $10,000 into $3.7 million versus the S&P $1.9 million. So it was a much higher return and uh, in, in, in the total return on your investment. But the actual losing years when, when added together was only 149.4 versus 159.2 for the S&P 500. I'm actually beginning to believe that it is not unreasonable to think that the ultimate buy and hold and these 10 uh, good, according to the academics, really good uh, premium kinds of equity asset classes. And by the way, their competition wasn't the S&P 500. Their competition was, uh, was, was the bond market. But, but they all, they're all in it together. And all I can say is, at least for that 53 years, that uh, you were better off to be in the 10 funds, make more money, and in a sense, take less risk. They both had the same worst. The worst year was 2008. In fact, the worst year for everybody was 2008. And the ultimate buy and hold was down 41.2 versus the S&P down 37. Now, as I look across the page, I see the other strategies down 153, 148, 144, 156, 141. There is only one strategy that had a worse accumulation of losing years. While the S&P 500 totaled 159.2, small cap value totaled 178. That's starting to look about like a 10% greater amount of loss. But what did you get in return? Well, if if you could get the same thing all over again, your 10,000 would have would have been worth 8.6 million versus 1.9 over this 53-year period. So as I look at all these numbers, and hopefully you will look more at these numbers, in fact, because I think the two-fund strategy, because it's so simple with the S&P 500 and, the, uh, uh, and small cap value, uh, since since it is such a powerful combination, I think it's interesting to note that the loss for that particular uh, combination was a negative 141.1, had almost exactly the same loss in 2008 as the S&P 500, and the t- the total return dollar-wise 4.5 million versus 1.9. So I think this information is very important in understanding why or how or if, what what is possible. Could you really have a higher rate of return while while feeling like you're probably taking uh, more risk, but then actually turn out not to have more risk? Now, to be fair, on a daily basis, you're going to have more volatility on, on many days of of the with the combination than with the S and P five hundred, that's true, but we don't care about days. We don't care about years theoretically, but we certainly do care about the end result. 
So that's table H2, and I think it is one powerful table. Now, let's go on to page 4 of 7. And what Daryl did here that I think is, it is really, uh, it's a good story, it's a good teaching tool to help, again, get your, your, your grips on, on the, the differences between these different strategies. This is table H3. And uh, uh, that, in this particular case, what Daryl did, what he was, he created a, uh, a a quilt chart so that you have the different colors um, from. Uh, and look at the far right for the, it shows the returns of these uh, different combinations on the far right in the order of uh, of their performance. So at the top of the of that column on the far right. Uh, that says 53 years, you'll see the worldwide all small cap value 13.7% compound rate of return. And then right below it, a darker blue color is the all U.S. small cap value. And then below that, by the way, at 13.6, below that is the U.S. all value at 13 and under that, that's a gold color. Under that is the brown worldwide all value. And finally, under that, a light green color, the U.S. 2 fund, half small cap value, a half S&P 500. Now, I want you to note all of five of these top performing had something in that in common, and that was... They had a lot of value. Some had a lot of small, like the worldwide all small cap value and the U.S. all small cap value. And the U.S. all value, remember that U.S. all value is half large and half small value, U.S. only, with a compound rate of return of 13. And right on down to the two-fund strategy with a compound rate of return of 122 and then as we drop down the page, the small and the value have less impact. But at the bottom of the page, it's the red S&P 500 that comes in at 10.4. But it's not like the S&P 500 didn't have times. It was just screaming. Like when we look at the very colorful table here, we can look at two periods, two of the, of, of the decades. We're calling the 10... 2010 through 2022 a decade, just for, for practicality's sake. But notice the S&P 500, we're right up at the top, yelling, we're number one, and the, and the, public, the public invariably says, not only are you number one, but you're probably going to be number one forever because you're the very best. And people love the S&P 500. They love the total market index as well. In the same way, but look at what's happening. The two fund strategy was just hanging in there, right behind. 1990 to 99, the S&P 500 up 18.2. The two fund strategy, 16.9. 2010 to 2022, the S&P 500, 12.1. The two fund strategy, 11.7. So I'm thinking the two fund strategy is not all that bad. 
compared to the S&P 500 when the S&P 500 is number one. Now, we can't guarantee that, of course. But look down at the bottom of the page. Notice the S&P 500 is the worst performing of the asset classes or the combinations in three out of the four decades we're looking at. But that's where it's supposed to be. That's where it's supposed to be because it is the highest quality, and the highest quality is supposed to have the lowest return. But notice what's kind of hanging in there with it. For example, in the period from 70 to 79, the S&P 500 compounds at 5.8, while the two-fund strategy that's half small cap value and half S&P 500 was 10.1. And the next decade, the S&P 500 is at the bottom with 17.5%. How would you like, like to be last in line with that kind of a return? On the other hand, the two-fund strategy, 18.9. And then the other period where the S&P 500 doesn't do well was the period from 2000 through 2009. It made a negative 1%, while the two-fund strategy was at 4.2. I mean, I'm just thinking that that combination uh, is it, going to be hanging around together a lot of the time, but that over time there should be advantage the two-fund strategy. And in fact, over the entire period, when we look over at that far right column, we can see that the two-fund strategy compounded at 12.2 versus 10.4 for the S&P 500, a 1.8% compound rate of return. But when I look at the U.S. all value, another two-fund strategy with half large and half small interesting possibilities, that had a compound rate of return of 13, a full 2.6% more per year over the S&P 500. And I mentioned this last week. If you looked at the companies inside of the all-large-cap all value part of that portfolio, you'd be very comfortable with those companies. They're, they're mostly giant companies. Um, I don't remember the exact average size company, but it's well over $100 billion. They're big companies. So this, again, this is all supposed to somehow get through to whatever your filtering process is to say, okay, this is a way I can evaluate uh, these uh, different portfolios and combinations. I'm not going to bore you with all the graphs, but I do want to just take a second and look at page five. If you remember, Daryl produced a telltale chart. It was more, uh, it was different than this, but it's a similar, it's, a, it's the same story. Uh, but he created a telltale chart that compared the small cap value to the S&P 500 going back to uh, uh, 1927, I think it actually started. And there were periods 
where the S&P 500 did better and periods where small cap value did better. But basically, it wasn't a question of how much money you made that, that impacted the chart. It was the relative return. And so uh, what you were looking at over time was how much better or worse was the S&P 500 doing than small cap value. And as you may recall, in fact, I'll leave a, a link uh, to, the, uh, to that, uh, that telltale chart. I think that's a great piece. And I think uh, Daryl's going to be updating that uh, in the coming months. I think it goes through 2019 at this point. <clears throat> but as I look at the graph uh, H4.1, uh, I, I notice here that on the left, you've got all these different portfolios we've been talking about and showing the performance from 1970 relative to the S&P 500. So by the time that you get out here to about uh, 1989, you, you will see that uh, these portfolios have made a substantial uh, advance uh, in, in, in return compared uh, to the S&P uh, 500. Uh, and at the end of the period, uh, you can see that in some cases, uh, the returns were from two to, to uh, about five times uh, the S&P 500, which, by the way, is, is, is certainly reflected in this table we've just been talking about, because you end up in one case with 1.9 million, and in another case, you end up with 8.6 million. So that's a multiple times uh, return. So, so here's the thing. If your focus is the long term, it looks like a slam dunk for the multiple combinations of these equity asset classes. But if you look at page 7 of 7, and you do the same study, but you wait until 2005 to start the study, as you can see, the S&P 500 beat everybody. And when that happens, it almost invariably leads to people believing that it's all over, things have changed. As I mentioned, I think, last week, uh, there, there, there was a period of about 20 years that bonds beat stocks, the S, beat the S&P 500. It, it didn't beat these other asset class combinations, but it did beat the S&P 500. And could we conclude that because of that 20 years that bonds are now a better deal than the S&P 500? No. Uh, at least I wouldn't conclude that. So uh, I know that this discussion, uh, without you having these tables in your hand, uh, is not going to have the impact of you be being able to have the time to sit and go through these tables. And uh, we'll also have a link to the presentation, that video presentation that uh, Daryl and and uh, Chris and I did uh, in the last week or so. So you'll have a couple of ways to review this, listening, looking at the tables, watching the video. 
But I think this is powerful evidence, and that's the whole, that's what we're, that's what we're trying to create for you, is a view of the evidence that gives, hopefully gives you the confidence to be able to do these things on your own. Remember, if you have an investment advisor, they haven't gone through anything more complex than what you're looking at in terms of the past. In fact, it's not unusual to find that people will will take a, a view of the last 10 years and try to make the case for a particular strategy based on the last 10 years or this particular actively managed fund did, did well for five years. Got to get on board while you can because this is going to be a great one. A lot of what professionals use is statistically not very relevant, but it sells well. And what I'm hoping that you're going to do is you're going to have seen information, the evidence over a period of time that you'll see it work and you'll see it fail. Because that's the way business is. I have to think about what would the table look like of Merriman Wealth Management or the graph to show what it went through to become what it did as an organization. It wasn't, it was not a bed of roses. Uh, in the end, it was, but it took a lot of years of patience and nurturing to have it be that. And it's the same with investing. And I go back to that, the, 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 uh, uh, podcasts and the videos that we've done talking about not only the uh, uh, the history of investing but the math of investing and how important it is for you to trust what you're doing because if you do trust it, I think you will make the extra effort to make sure that you build the foundation of your portfolio so that it has the opportunity to let the, the growth that is... At, at least we know is possible, because it's happened in the past, uh, but to let that growth go and build you a, a really successful long-term business. Oh, I, I almost forgot. Oh, my gosh. I had included in the information and referenced another set of tables. And, uh, and so you can take the link uh, and and review the tables regarding uh, the 70-30 tables, 70% U.S. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and 30% uh, international. Let me just tell you the bottom line, because it is not, uh, it's, it's not a big difference. If, I, if you simply went to the uh, table of, uh, of returns, that look at all the decades and look at the up years and the down years, you're not going to find big differences. But but let's just look uh, at at, uh, at at the ones that in, that include the internationals because there'd be no difference uh, in the uh, in the ones that were all U.S. But let me just just take a few seconds to compare the compound. Uh, annualized growth rate, the CAGR, for the worldwide ultimate buy and hold strategy uh, with the 50-50 was 11.8% compound rate of return. It's 11.9. 
with the 70-30. He would have made more because the U.S. did better during most of that period of time. Uh, if you looked at the worldwide four-fund strategy, uh, it was 11.9% with the 50-50. It was 12.1% with the 70-30. If you looked at the worldwide all-value, it was 12.6% with 50-50 and 12.8% with the 70-30. Uh, if you looked at the worldwide all-small-cap uh, value, it was 13.7 uh, with the 50-50 versus 13.8 with the uh, 70-30. And, and we always know what we should have done, uh, but th that will show you that the, the returns are similar. We we know from past discussions that picking up an extra one-eighth or one-tenth of one percent can be meaningful. So I am not making light of this difference. But that, at least for those of you who feel a little uncomfortable, uncomfortable being 50% uh, in international, at least over the last 53 years, it would have helped. You would have made a little more money uh, with the 70-30 with, with than the 50-50. So there you are. That's, uh, uh, that's, that's the story. Uh, I hope it is a, uh, and it is a, a story because uh, we, we can't make it a fact. It, 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 it becomes fiction once it has happened because it'll never happen the same way again. That's one of the interesting challenges of investing and one of the reasons why I think it's really smart to be a massive diversifier however you do this. So uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll uh, uh, look forward to talking to you next time about the fine-tuning your asset allocation tables that now blend in with all of these uh, equity asset classes, uh, the uh, uh, fixed income. See you then. I hope this helps. I hope you will watch the video or you will spend some time uh, with those uh, tables. And uh, you know how to get a hold of me, paul at paulmerriman.com. We continue to try to help every way that we know to, to, to be, make you a better investor. And by the way, don't overlook those truth tellers. Boy, some of those people I just think are doing marvelous, marvelous work, whether it's Rob Berger or Tom Cock and Don McDonald or, or, or Ben Carlson or Jason Zwei by the, oh, I don't think Jason's name is on the list yet, but he is certainly one of them, and uh, and others that I think are are giving you the straight scoop and will help you be uh, a better investor. Thanks for listening. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.